Thank you all very much for coming. I'm honoured and delighted to see so many people, so many people who are interested in the Middle Ages. Uh, sorry to make a late start. Um, it was, you know, bringing more people in off the streets sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all very much for coming. When Gail, that's Gail, asked me to uh, give a talk for Adult Learners Week to celebrate this week, um, I wanted to make it relevant to the theme of learning at work, obviously. I'm a medieval historian, and I am also spending my, my career teaching adults, uh, many of whom are at work. So like all the other uh, staff of the department, uh, we, we are thinking about our subject, but we're also thinking about it within the special context of continuing education. So for me, the question arises very naturally. What can we find out about adult learning in the Middle Ages? And how might that be relevant to how we teach and learn today in our own time? You have these bright ideas, don't you? <laughs> um, before committing myself to talking about such a topic, um, I wanted to be clear in my own mind. It seemed prudent to find out whether that kind of learning happened at all. Uh, I wasn't really clear that it did. After all, in the medieval period, uh, a very small minority of people were literate, and the opportunities for education of any sort were very limited. There was even a strain of thought that implied that learning was dangerous to your chances of salvation. There's a thought. The late 14th century writer William Langland, uh, he had this to say on the subject. None are more easily seduced from the right beliefs than clever scholars who study a lot of books <laughs> And none are sooner saved or are firmer in their faith than simple ploughmen and shepherds and poor common labourers. William Langland, as some of you may know, had a particular point of view and a particular reason for thinking that learning might be a dangerous thing. However, that is what he had to say. I didn't want to spend my time talking to you about the upbringing and education of children. Um, those are very important topics and people have written a lot more uh, about that, um, but that's not my subject. And I didn't want to talk about the development of Oxford University. Uh, we are here, this is Oxford University, and the medieval period is entirely relevant for the development of the university um, and, and the, the colleges that so much characterise the town. But again, it's a well-trodden subject. I'm sure more will be written, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. The other thing I'm not going to talk about, and I will get on to the thing I am going to talk about, but this is what I'm not going to talk about now, uh, is the education of aristocratic children, which famously took place in the households of other aristocrats. Uh, one of the medieval ways of thinking was child-rearing is uh, a thing best left to experts. So 
don't do it at home. <laughs> so what I do want to talk about now this evening is the teaching of people in and for the world of work. Were people trained and instructed on how to do their work? And if so, how was that achieved? And then I found myself thinking, well, what was the world of work in the Middle Ages? They were very fond of alliteration as well. Um, perhaps a good way to start is to think of the traditional divisions of society in the Middle Ages. Um, this is the conventional medieval framework for thinking about the world. So there were those who prayed, the clergy, those who fought, the knights, and those who laboured, which is everybody else. It's a very traditional concept, as I say, certainly by the central Middle Ages, you would expect to find it in different forms of literature. But of course, in practice, things were nothing like as neat as such a pattern would suppose. For one thing, the third category, those who laboured, was a great deal larger than the other two. Those who laboured did very hard agricultural work for the most part, and their purpose was to provide food for the other two orders, the other two estates. At a time of very limited technology, where a windmill or a plough or a cart would be the thing that would really make a difference to the way in which you work, the amount of work you had to do. Physic the sheer physical effort involved in achieving things was enormous to process those raw materials and turn them into food. Equally in towns which housed just a minority of people, at most 20% of the population in the later Middle Ages. Uh, physical labour too uh, characterised the way most people led their lives. Putting all that ale to be brewed in vats and lifting all those huge swathes of cloth to be dyed, making barrels, all these very heavy, hard types of work. There was, for some medieval writers, a sort of virtue to be found in that physical labour. Um, you find, for example, that the ploughman is characterised as the sort of embodiment of goodness. There are examples in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which you, you may well know, uh, that, that the ploughman is a sort of model. Uh, he's hard-working and he's always willing to help his neighbours. Piers the Ploughman, in William Langland's uh, poem, is, um, he is a, a teacher to his neighbours, uh, and, and he too is presented as an ideal. It is the case that both of those writers were, were producing their work at a time when agricultural labour itself was undergoing great change, and people were finding it more difficult to, to get a ploughman to do hard physical work. Paradoxically to that, the idea of hard labour equals virtue is a rather more snobbish notion that uh, doing work with your hands is somehow vulgar. Um, 
specific examples actually come from Scotland, um, where if you wanted to be in the top merchant guild, you had to forswear your craft. You had to say, I will no longer, if I'm a butcher, put my hands into the inside of an animal. And I certainly won't, if I'm a dyer, be touching the dye stuff. Uh, ugh, how disgusting, if I want to really rise in the world. So that is the, uh, the nature of physical uh, work for that estate. But for the other two estates uh, in this tripart division of tripartite division of society, the nature of the work, uh, how it was conceived and done, was rather different. For the clergy, the task of prayer was their work. It was a service that they were required to perform. The obligation to pray was intrinsic to monastic life, to, mona to the monastic rule and more specifically, gifts of property were made to religious houses on the specific condition that the monks or nuns would pray for the soul of the founder and his family. So in the sense that prayer is an obligation, a responsibility, something you must constantly do and at certain times, prayer itself is a form of work. The rule of St. Benedict and other monastic rules also had built into them um, provisions for, for times for manual labour and for study. So prayer is the main thing, but there are other forms of work as well. For Oxford, the friars are of particular interest. They, like monks and nuns, are governed by a rule, but they're different because they go out and they minister to the laity. And their work is to preach and to teach and to hear confessions. Parish priests, though, are, are mainly responsible, primarily responsible for the pastoral care of the people in their parish, and that is their their labour, if you like, their work. And they have to administer the sacraments, they have to hear confessions, they have to preach. If you were to read the description of the poor parson, again in Chaucer's prologue to the Canterbury Tales, uh, you find that being a really good parish priest is no soft option. Uh, it, this parish priest travels all over uh, to, when anybody needs him and he travels far and wide on foot and in all weathers. Of course what we don't know is whether Chaucer is talking about a real person or whether most parish priests are rather unlike that and don't go and do that hard physical walk out into the snow to, to look after the sick and the needy. The final estate, the estate that fought, which protected everybody else, uh, that too involves work of some kind in, in the form of training and exercise of, of battle. And you had to train, you couldn't just go and, and do it. And that was the whole aristocratic profession, to be trained in the use of arms. There's one rather gruesome quotation showing you um, 
uh, how hard that would be. The chronicler Roger of Howden, writing towards the uh, end of the 12th century, about the importance of the tournament as a training ground for soldiers in battle, for knights in battle. He is not fit for battle who has never seen his own blood flow, who has not heard his teeth crunch under the blow of an opponent, nor felt the full weight of his adversary upon him. Traditionally, the profession of arms was something you were born to as an aristocrat, and you, th that needed to be so, because the cost of the equipment and of the training and of the horse um, is not something that anyone can afford. For those who held their lands in return for military service, fighting was an obligation, whereas for others, they might commute that obligation. So not absolutely everybody uh, that, that, that was born to it carried it out. In some families, a younger son might take up the profession of arms as a career choice rather than an obligation. Of course, though, not all fighters in the Middle Ages were aristocratic. Uh, the aristocracy provided the leadership. That was absolutely crucial. But there were loads of others as well. There are foot soldiers. There are archers. And then there are all those people who look after the siege engines and who undermine castle walls by digging and who... Uh, who construct ladders to scale walls, all these other support people. They're not aristocratic. They're, as it were, the labouring estate. But they are in engaged in war too. So in the Middle Ages, although there's supposedly one estate that does the labouring, in fact, everybody has their obligation towards the other two estates. The key point, of course, is the balance in the different activities. And if each of the idea was that if each of the three estates did its duty, then everybody would be all right. But it, it sounds idyllic, doesn't it? But it doesn't work <laughs> because people want to do something different from that which their estate uh, pushes them towards. There are professionals as well. I mean, where do merchants fit in? They're slightly aristocratic, but they're slightly in the labouring classes, which is why they don't like people who are going to call themselves merchants to be sticking their hands in the inside of sheep. What about civil servants? What do you do with them? That's a rhetorical question. Um, <laughs> what about bishops who work for the government? What about academics? What about knights who didn't like fighting? And all those, th those are all intrinsic problems, but towards the end of our period, it's very clear that the, 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 the whole of society is changing and, and that a, a tripartite model really won't work so well. Anyway, it does still show you that there are all sorts of different kinds of work to be done. Um, and there were things that were recognised as being work that we perhaps would not, we would not agree with. Okay, so moving on from the, the three estates, 
other things for us to consider when trying to understand the medieval world of work. Where did it happen? For many ordinary people, work would have happened inside the home and around the home. In a town, uh, your workshop might well be in the, in the same building in which you, you lived with your family. And there would be families multitasking in the same room and even using the same equipment, both for commercial purposes and for private purposes. Uh, in, in Aberdeen, uh, there had to be an instruction to dyers whose wives also brewed ale that they were not to use the same vat for both. <laughs> Imagine it. It's a reminder that the economic contribution of women, which could be very important indeed in making ends meet, was very often carried on in the home and that the commercial side of the activity would be a supplement to feeding the family. So you're going to make oat cakes or you're going to brew ale for the family, but then you'll go out and you'll sell the surplus. And other things that require not too much space and not too much equipment, like making candles or carding and spinning wool, they too can be done in the home. The home also is a place where you would have live-in servants. Uh, very ordinary people, uh, I'd like a few servants now, but uh, <laughs> in the medieval period, it's very common for people to have servants and a master craftsman might house his apprentices in the family home. Something I'm gonna come back to. At the very other end of the social scale, the big aristocratic and uh, bishops' households or abbots' households, um, the household is a castle or a monastery or a bishop's palace, and it's not like a home at all. It's more like the head office of a company. Uh, it's the center point of your influence. Your tenants will come and seek you out. If you're a great baron, your knights will come and spend time with you. Uh, your tenants will come to visit you and present their, their problems to you. You'll do all your networking, you'll entertain people. So your, your household has a working function, a public function, as well as being a private place for you. So this is something else to bear in mind, thinking about the world of work. Work in the medieval period is also linked to life cycle, as you would expect. There's that quote that everybody gives you, which is, life in the Middle Ages was nasty, brutish, and short. Um, I find it very difficult to believe that uh, any human life is necessarily brutish or nasty, but medieval life certainly was shorter than our own on average. It doesn't mean that you get to age 25 and then drop dead automatically. It means that there's a high rate of child mortality. Once you, as, as you get older, your life expectancy up to a certain point improves. But because life is shorter, a greater proportion of that life is spent in working one way or another. 
And for one thing, you would start working a great deal earlier. The age of reason, I remember asking this of a, in the university nursery, when will my children reach an age where I can reason with them? And I remember being told, oh, well, quite soon. Anyway, in the Middle Ages, the age of reason was precisely seven. You had godparents who were supposed to guard you from the dangers of fire and water up until the age of seven. But well before you got to the age of seven, you'd be working. You'd be collecting firewood, you'd be collecting eggs, you'd be drawing water from the well. Um, you'd be looking after the young children, the younger children, even younger than you. You'd be chasing the chickens, all these sorts of things that needed to be done around the, 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 the typical family home. And so children could multitask, because none of those things takes you all your time. As children got older, it became common for their parents to involve them, and sometimes that would involve them in paid work. So when you look at manorial accounts and you see that the Lord is paying a tiler threepence a day, then he might be paying a tiler and his son working with him fourpence a day. So the son becomes a source of labour from quite a young age. And other jobs like being a mason or a thatcher, you can imagine as well, there would be a role, there would be a means of training up your, your son. At the married stage of the life cycle, uh, wives would help their husband uh, in, in the husband's work. Uh, again, we know this from wage rates in rural settings, a man and a woman doing, doing such and such. But uh, even more so in towns, this happened. Some medieval craft associations forbade women to work in the craft but would allow a man to work with his wife or daughter. The advantages of having your wife or daughter work with you are very obvious because you don't have to pay them a money wage. Um, and so you save on wage labor outside the family. But interestingly, it also, interestingly also prepared those women to take over the husband's business when he died, if he did. Another thing that women could do uh, uh, if they were the wives of merchants, they could be their, their husband's agent. So that saved having to, to uh, ask somebody who perhaps you knew less well to be your agent for you. And so the wife would need to have some sort of instruction and knowledge of her husband's affairs. Didn't always stop things from going wrong occasionally. There is a lovely story uh, from, again from Aberdeen in 1538. So a chap called William Bawdy, which is a good name, William Bawdy, uh, <laughs> a merchant, he had had to go abroad, so he left his wife to take delivery of two barrels of salmon from somebody called John Roach. And the wife, whose name is Elspeth, turns up to, and says, can you please take the top off those two barrels? I'd like to check that they're both good. Because you don't want, don't buy a pig in a poke, don't buy a salmon in a closed barrel. Uh, so he opens up the first one and she sees, oh, well, they all seem fine. And then he says, oh, I've got another business appointment I need to go to. 
I promise that the second barrel is equally good. And she says, oh, all right then. And off he goes. And off the salmon goes to market. And of course, when the second barrel is opened, it's found to be full of just little ones. Nothing like as good as the first one. So Elspeth would not make that mistake twice, but I expect she got a big telling off when she went home or when her husband came back. (coughs) In fact, husbands seem to have worried quite a lot about what their wives might do and get them into trouble. You sometimes find that a husband will turn up in the borough court and say, nobody take anything of mine from my wife because she is known to be a spendthrift. Oh, dearie me, my wife has got hold of my seal. Nobody take any notice of the way my seal is being used, as if you'd lost your credit card or something. And in fact, something that looks as if it was almost like a sort of bid for female independence turns out to be uh, husbands trying to protect the family assets. There was a practice whereby, or procedure, whereby women who were married could declare themselves to be femme sole, lone woman. And it was a procedure set up to enable men to, as it were, hive off their wives' business activities from the main, asset of the fam- from the main assets of the family. So that if she did get into debt or uh, engage in some lawsuit, the husband's goods wouldn't have to be used to pay for her mistakes. So... So that's the married stage of the the life cycle. At the end of the the personal life cycle, people did actually live long enough to retire, which, you know, we can't now take this for granted, apparently. We know that people retired because of the various arrangements uh, that have survived that show us what, what... how it was done. Uh, so monastery, a monastery might provide a, a, a servant of their patron with accommodation and food um, and, and might look after them. Uh, a monastery might also be a place where a parish priest would go after when, when he became too old to do those onerous duties of uh, skipping around the parish. Um, widowed ladies might also go and live in a monastery, a, a nunnery obviously. But we also know that quite ordinary people made arrangements uh, for others to look after them uh, in their old age. So what they might do is hand over their property to the younger generation in return for a room and food in the new generation's household. And we know that this often went badly wrong because they then had to sue the younger generation in the manor court because they'd stop providing them with food. And I've heard that that can happen even nowadays. <laughs> so there's a period in medieval life uh, that is recognised as childhood. There's a period that is recognised as that of your retirement. And so the bit in between is when you're, you're doing your work So how did you train for it? What sorts of instruction were available? And what opportunities were there for progress? The most obvious 
way of learning on the job was if you became an apprentice. Uh, now, there are actually different types of apprenticeship in the different estates that I've talked about, um, but it's the moment in your life where you undertake this formal training for a particular role. Uh, so you could be a novice monk or nun. You could be a knight in training going to live in one of those other uh, households than your own. But apprenticeships, characteristically, are when you're learning a craft. So you go and live in the household of the master craftsman, and you receive food and clothing and training, and the purpose is to learn that particular craft. And it happens in your teenage years, from 14 years old onwards. And your apprenticeship might last as long as 10 years, or it might be as short as seven. And some people just learnt a bit and then went off. But the whole idea of apprenticeship is that you really are learning. And the arrangements made for apprenticeships are reciprocal. So both sides of the, um, both parties had to, had, had to fulfil obligations. So the master gets cheap labour in return for provision of this training and, and, and for food. Um, you might have your family, or at that young age you would, have your family or your friends as your sponsors to pay uh, a sum of money up front for this training. And you'd also pay a fee to the guild in which, to which the apprenticeship would then introduce you. Examples of apprenticeship agreements show that they don't just cover the apprentice's actual work, they govern his moral behaviour as well. So you, if you're an apprentice, you mustn't marry or commit fornication or go to the theatre. You must keep your master's secrets. But the master must undertake to train you without concealing anything. And that, of course, is how you find out what the master's secrets are. So, as a parent, trying to find work experience placements for my children, bearing in mind, you know, the travel, the risks involved, and so on, this sort of thing is very valuable because it, written into those arrangements, you must teach, they must learn something, they must progress. You just don't want these young people being, your, your family spending that money and then the young person being used as a dog's body. In practice, they sometimes were, but the agreements were in place to prevent that. Apprentices, uh, apprenticeships were for the privileged few. It wasn't something that was open to just any, anybody. And for many people, and particularly those engaged in agricultural work, training was done by learning on the job and by practicing skills day in, day out. And as a result of that, we often don't know exactly how the training was done, how much swearing happened. <laughs> um, particularly when the instruction was being given by a more experienced, older person, probably the parent in many cases, or it could be 
um, the master or mistress in a great household. The model of learning at work being done by the older, more experienced person teaching and instructing the younger novice is, is a natural thing. That is what you would expect. And that seems to be the format, uh, indeed, for many of the instruction manuals for the period. And these are a wonderful and most exciting uh, form of medieval source. And they, they occur in lots of different formats and with different emphases according to the, their main purpose. So you might find sort of detailed practical instruction on how to do a particular job, how the institution works. Um, or you might find when you're doing that particular job, this is how you should conduct yourself, which is rather different, isn't it? And these sources tell us an awful lot about medieval social and economic and even religious life. Of course, they tell you what the ideal is. They give you a paradigm. They don't tell you what a typical experience may have been. <coughs> they reveal also the extent to which those doing a particular job at a particular time understood the nature and purpose of the job um, and they also reveal which aspects of medieval life were thought to be governable by a set of rules, which that will be something, as it were, culturally constructed and subject to change over time. And what aspects of our own lives do we believe ought to be governed by a set of rules? Perhaps not everything. One of the earliest of these instruction manuals is called The Dialogue of the Exchequer. And of course you would expect to find a government acting according to a set of agreed rules, wouldn't you? This instruction manual was written in the 1170s by an experienced royal administrator, Richard Fitz Nigel. He was Bishop of London and the Royal Treasurer, multitasker. He tells us it's fine for ecclesiastics to be involved in royal government. Good and holy things can be achieved by governments. Since the king is answerable to God, his clerical servants don't need to worry too much about the king's activities because God will sort it out. Oh, and governments are able most effectively to do good things if they have funding and proper procedures. So the writer dedicates his book, his, his treatise, his, in, his manual to King Henry II. And this is what he says. To be sure, the exchequer has evolved its rules, not by hazard, but by the deliberations and decisions of great men. And if those rules are observed in every particular, the rights of individuals will be maintained, and the revenue due to the treasury will come to you in full, and this in your hand, which this your hand, which administers to your most noble mind, may suitably expend. And so he, he sets up um, 
this this whole dialogue whereby the um, the master who knows how the exchequer works is asked a whole series of questions by the disciple who doesn't. So the first question, and why is the exchequer called the exchequer? Oh, well, since you've asked me, the exchequer is called the exchequer because of so-and-so. And so it's this, the old teaching the young. You could certainly say that the 12th century saw a massive growth in the competency and scope of royal government. And that was followed in the 13th century by an expansion of baronial bureaucracy and estate management procedures. There really was a change in the uh, 13th century as landlords, in response to higher prices, in response to an increased population, in response to fiscal needs on the part of the government, that is more taxes, um, they needed to exploit their own estates more effectively. And so you, you find more professional administrators growing up, or expanding, um, and you also find as a corollary uh, the beginning of books uh, on estate management written for estate administrators. One of my favourite, I think it's the one of the earliest, is something called The Rules, which are attributed to Robert Grosstest, Robert Bighead, Bishop of Lincoln, and also an early Chancellor of Oxford. Um, he became Bishop of Lincoln, uh, having, having done other jobs, uh, in 1235. And a few years later, he was called upon to write a set of instructions for the Countess of Lincoln because her husband had died. This is in about 1240. And so she has become the administrator, the, the, the head of her whole household, and she needs to administer her estates in her own right. Previously, she had, you know, she had had her husband to do it. So Robert Grosstest kindly presides over the production of a set of rules for her. And what he comes up with is really very sensible. Check out all your assets to start with, know what you've got, then you will be in a position to delegate tasks to proper estate managers. And he envisages a moment where she sort of summons these estate managers and she says, now I'm giving you the task of managing my company and you better do a good job of it. The parts where um, he's describing how she ought to organize her household are actually even more fun. Um, so you don't have anybody who's habitually drunk so you can be drunk, you know, Saturdays. Um, you must have people who are loyal to you. You make sure you know what's happening because you sit at dinner in your great hall with all your people about you and you don't have suppers in people's, in private halls or in chambers. Everything has to be open so that you can see what's going on. And this is very good wisdom because isn't it true that some of the 
best modern managers are those who actually fraternise and know their employees and spend time with them on a, in a social sense. So you can see from this that being the head of a household, being the head of um, a great estate, involves, uh, it's, it's a job that has specific duties, even though uh, those duties are characterised by an ability to delegate and to oversee, rather than physically doing the work yourself. It's good, there's a notion of good practice. As you'd expect, there are also a whole series of manuals on actually doing the job of managing estates, um, one called stewardship, and that explains how you, uh, what your duties as steward are, what the duties of those working under you ought to be, the extent of discretion in particular managerial roles. So what you ought to be able to ask a manorial bailiff to do. He's not meant to, for example, sack anybody, but he can spend so much money. He can make this sort of decision. What you can expect of a dairymaid or not. So the idea of having job descriptions, which again, we think of as being a very modern thing, don't we? But these existed uh, in medieval times to guide those who were managers in the discharge of their, their duties. Conduct books of somewhat later, of the 15th century, do seem to me to be rather more concerned with reputation and how you comport yourself. Um, it's a lot of concern with sort of outward behaviour and looking good. One such book is John Russell's Book of Nurture. Uh, and John Russell had worked in the household of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. That's as in Duke Humphrey's library in the Bodleian Library. I hope you are getting these Oxfordish <laughs> references. Um, anyway, so he's on the point of retirement in the 1440s and he writes a book about how he has, he has uh, fulfilled his, his duties. And he does it in the form of a poem. And it's in the style of an older man telling a younger man, much younger man or boy, how to go about his, his work. Um, and by the 15th century, uh, work in a great household, serving at table or looking after the Lord's horses or uh, being his henchman, it might very well be done as, by someone of, of reasonable social status, of gentle birth. And so it's important to, while you're carrying out that job, remember your, 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 your gentle origins. Uh, but even though you've, you've come from uh, a, a, perhaps a knightly family or a gentle family, you still have to do such things as serving the ale or folding the napkins or cutting the bread, that sort of thing. And it's all about manners for a gentleman. Be fair of answer ready to serve and gentle of cheer and then men will say there goes a gentle officer <laughs> that book of nurture john russell's book is written in verse 
and it does suggest to me that it may have been written as much for entertainment as instruction. But then again, the boundary between being entertained and being instructed is very fuzzy, isn't it? Um, and in fact, some of the best instruction you can have, it's when it's fun to receive. I suppose one wants to decide whether something is intended primarily for one or for the other purpose. Um, another example of that ilk is Christine de Pizan's Treasure of the City of Ladies. Christine de Pizan uh, was uh, from Italy. Her family were from Italy, but her father became physician to the French king. When Christine's father and husband died in fairly quick succession, she found herself in need of earning a living. So unlike many women in her position, she decided not to enter a monastery, not to remarry, but to make her living as a writer. It was amazing. Um, she, she wrote a number of books, but two in particular uh, I wanted to, to share with you. There's one, she, she writes the, uh, the Book of the City of Ladies, which is her riposte to all the uh, stories she has heard about the doings of wicked women. Uh, now, the doings of wicked women was a, was a sort of established medieval uh, genre of writing. And she's not the first woman to have been cross either. Uh, if we go back to Chaucer again for a moment, the wife of Bath tells us how she's fed up of sitting in bed with her husband, her fifth husband actually, and he's, instead of doing something else, he's sitting there reading her stories about wicked women. <laughs> so anyway, there are a lot of these such books. And Christine de Pizan sets about writing a book of, a book, look, there can be good women. And so she, she writes this, this, this book of the, the City of Ladies. But her second book, which is the, the, the Treasure of the City of Ladies, is quite different because it's a practical manual for women for how to get on in the world as they actually encounter it. And I draw it to your attention because it's so comprehensive. It has guidance for women of all social stations, from princesses to prostitutes. I would say that the advice to princesses is probably based more on actual experience because she was, after all, a lady of the court. The advice to prostitutes is a little impractical. <laughs> it's basically stop doing it, which, you know. <laughs> I think that the modern equivalent of Christine de Pizan, and if there are Christine de Pizan scholars here. I am sorry for what I am about to say. Um, but it, the equivalent might be one of those reality television programs where you, know, you sort of look at what naughty people are doing and then you think, well, thank goodness, at least our family's not doing that. <laughs> the very interesting thing about Christine de Pizan is that unlike this... this, this um, way that you find the older person addressing the younger. Christine addresses all women. She addresses young women and she addresses elderly women with specific reference to what they should be doing in their 
older age. So she moves away from the traditional pattern. Christine's idea that uh, women of different stations in life who are wives, that being a wife is a job in itself, uh, also comes out in, in a manual written towards the end of the 14th century by um, a Parisian patrician. Now, here's an interesting chap. He marries a lady much, much younger than himself. And so in order to make sure that she's going to look after him properly, he writes her a manual of instruction. <laughs> including very useful recipes, where to go shopping in Paris. <laughs> um, including a couple of bits on naughty wives, how not to behave when you are married to me. It is tremendous fun, but it also provides for pro career progression for this young woman because the idea is that when he has popped his clogs, she will go off and be able to marry a second husband and she'll know how to do it the second time around. Many thanks to this wonderful instruction she's had from her first husband. So I'm sure she would have been grateful. The idea that there's no fixed boundary between uh, instruction and entertainment, uh, we can also explore that through the writings of the many medieval chroniclers and, and historians. They explicitly claim to be writing for the edification of their audiences. Um, they're taking from the past and giving an example to the future. This is uh, very much Bede's intention, writing his uh, Ecclesiastical History of the English People in the 8th century. John of Salisbury in the 12th century elaborates on that. Uh, chroniclers, he says, have to relate noteworthy matters so that the invisible things of God may be clearly seen by the things that are done. And he says, he quotes from Cato, the lives of others are our teachers and whoever knows nothing of the past hastens blindly into the future. So people have a duty, people who have a duty, who have work in this world, need to know their history. And that is a quote. Uh, John Froissart, uh, the historian of the Hundred Years' War, another person who says, I'm going to take the chivalrous deeds that have happened in this war and I'm going to show them to you as the examples of, of good behaviour. And his, his, um, his entertaining uh, history of the Hundred Years' War is a sort of series of vignettes of beautiful chivalrous behaviour undertaken by people, real people. So it sort of flatters the patron and it flatters the families of those who, who, who are depicted in his work. Some of these works are... Uh, for aristocratic entertainment are not meant to be read, uh, read privately, they're meant to be read aloud. Uh, exactly what is selected for reading aloud and therefore the kind of instruction that would be available to people in a great household uh, is going to depend on who the head of household is. So somebody who is a, a great chivalric lord might very well enjoy Froissart. However, not everybody was like that. There is a uh, the widowed Sicily, Duchess of York, who in 1485 has a sort of diet of reading, including Hilton on the contemplative and active life, Bonaventura, the golden legend, actually the golden legend would be fun, 
uh, St. Matilda, St. Catherine of Siena, and the revelations of St. Bridget. And if you missed it at dinner, she would read it again at supper time. Very different. Margaret Beaufort, mother of Henry VII, had 76 copies of St. Thomas Kempis's Imitation of Christ made for members of her household. She had actually, this is the English translation, and she'd undertaken the translation of part of it herself. So it's sort of you know, encouraging, this is my book, would you like to uh, have a copy? Lower down the social scale, because th these are the aristocrats, uh, Sicily and, and, and Margaret Beaufort, but lower down the social scale where literacy is, is much less um, and there's far less access to written material, the medium of instruction and of entertainment is going to be oral uh, rather than by means of written texts. But what is wonderful about the Middle Ages is that what you might call liberal adult education is happening all over the place and in all sorts of contexts. You think of the church, in the, the, the parish church, not the, the church, the parish church where you see images of saints on wall paintings and statues and sculptures. Um, craft organisations in towns uh, were an opportunity for if, what you might call interactive learning and participation. Uh, on great feast days of the church, craft organisations would put on plays and pageants written by the clergy. The, the mystery plays, as they were called, were cycles of stories from the Bible, um, from the creation to the resurrection. Uh, and so they bring stories to life and place them in a contemporary environment and so bring them much closer, make them real. I think this is the last time I'll say Aberdeen. I will now say Aberdeen um, because a lot of these festivities were at the Feast of Corpus Christi. Um, but at Aberdeen, there was also a festival at Candlemas, which is the 2nd of February. And on that occasion, the different craft groups in the town, each craft group would be given the responsibility of kitting out particular characters in the, mystery, in, in the pageant, um, and, and there would be a play. And then you would, the different craft groups would take their place in a procession, each craft group in a fixed relationship to the others, so you would know exactly what the hierarchy was. So not only did these plays teach you about the Bible and about the saints, they taught you what your role in the town was and where you yourself fitted in and gave you that sense that you belonged. And they were compulsory. You had to join in. It might be controversial to say that not far removed from street entertainment uh, were medieval sermons, sometimes uh, delivered in public. The real professionals there were the friars, the Dominicans, the Franciscans and others. They were educated, they had great stories, very persuasive, and they spoke to people in the language that they could understand, English. They also heard confessions. The world of the friars, in some respects, uh, encroached on the world of the ordinary parish priest, who perhaps was less 
well-educated than a friar. Um, depending on the, the particular time in history that you're, you're talking about, there were special drives um, by, by the institutional church for the education of the parish clergy to try to encourage them to improve in the quality of the pastoral uh, training and instruction that they gave. Uh, a particular time was after the plague of the 14th century, the mid-14th century, when the church had had to recruit new priests quite quickly and they needed to be given their instruction to instruct the laity quite quickly. Uh, so that standards do not decline. The Archbishop of York, John Thorsby, um, wrote in 1357 a manual for parish priests, sort of instruction on the job. Uh, so he set out the key doctrines, the sacraments, the seven deadlies, the seven virtues, um, and that's supposed to tell priests so that they knew, so that they could in turn pass it on to the laity. Another way of making sure the clergy were doing all the right things was visitations. And you could have visitations of monasteries and visitations of parishes. Uh, it's a bit like a modern appraisal, I would say, or opportunity for whistleblowing. Um, so the bishop and his whole staff would pitch up at your monastery and then there would be one-to-one -one interviews with the monks and the nuns and they are uh, um, very revealing of what may have been going on in certain late medieval monasteries. Um, Eileen Power who's a, a wonderful medieval historian, historian of nuns, she said there are three real dangers for the medieval nun, dogs, dancing and dresses. When you think about it, it's rather sort of sad in a way to think that there were dogs and little children in the dormitories, uh, but rather disturbing to think that there were also dogs in the church as well. I don't think that that would be allowed these days. Uh, and it wasn't then. Uh, so you would get a whole series of instructions. Uh, the bishop trying to reinstate good practice where it had been lost. So don't we have here a lot of examples of those who know, those who believe themselves to be experts, setting themselves up to teach those who are on the receiving end. Um, they, they love their subject, they're enthusiastic, they're proud of what they themselves have achieved, they believe themselves to be the guardians of good practice and they want to pass it on to somebody else. But how do we know about the audiences? Um, how, how appreciative were they? Um, did the young in particular appreciate being told what to do by those older than themselves? A wonderful 12th century monastic writer, Jocelyn of Brakelond in the Abbey of Bury St Edmunds. He tells us this wonderful description of, of life in the, in the monastery um, at the end of the 12th century. The young monks said that the senior monks were elderly and infirm and incapable of governing the abbey. Hmm. So the young didn't always appreciate being told what to do. Other ways of telling whether um, 
a piece of work written with such enthusiasm by its, its maker was well received. We can know this from the number of copies that were made, lots of copies of the Canterbury Tales, for example. Um, we also know that people sometimes actively sought to be instructed. They put themselves in that, in that position. Um, a classic is that uh, members of the royal family and of the nobility would seek instruction from the friars who became their confessors, um, and they would engage in a sort of correspondence, sort of like um, you know, a counsellor now, or a coacher, I think. Um, Simon de Montfort was friends with the friar Adam Marsh. There's that story that Henry V, on the night of his accession to the throne in 1413, <clears throat> went and, and, and sought spiritual guidance from his confessor. Women would seek guidance from other women of the same social station. So one of the Paston family, Margaret Paston, doesn't know what to do at Christmas when there's been a bereavement in the family. She doesn't want to sort of um, do the wrong thing. So she sends her sons to go and consult with other noble ladies in the neighbourhood. What would you do at Christmas if you'd had a bereavement in the family? Is it all right to play cards, musical instruments, uh, or play chess? What is sort of okay? And she comes back, they, she, she gets her answer. Anybody who wants to know, you know, what you could do in the medieval period, uh, see me afterwards. Um, it has been a great delight to stand here and talk about the Middle Ages for a whole hour. <laughs> um, and to share with you some of the, the wonderful literature and writing of the period. But you know, Historians can't just cherry pick, can they? Um, we need to put it together and consider what the patterns are and what we ourselves might learn. Learning in the Middle Ages, learning and teaching, it was often the voice of experience addressing the young. And particularly, we find that when we've got the written, the written um, evidence of that happening. Because of that, it is true that traditions would have been perpetuated. The wisdom of the previous generation would be carried on to the next, which sounds perhaps not so much innovatory as maintaining the status quo. But when you think of life as being fragile and lives as being short uh, and, and, and subject to instability, having that sense of continuity rather than of change would have been a very reassuring Thing, and a force, genuinely a force for stability. And at a time when so many of the institutions depended on the, um, the, the commitment and the knowledge of individuals rather than being institutionalised, then that wisdom is very much worth imparting. The written instruction that was provided uh, often quite clearly for the delight of the creator. He loved doing it. He loved saying about how he had spent his life, or she, um, relishing his, accompli his accomplishments. It does seem to me 
that it actually enabled somebody to articulate their own experience so that they, they were teaching themselves as much as they were teaching anybody else. If you have to stand there or sit there or sit there writing and express so that it means something to somebody else, you have to be very clear about what it does mean. And it can also help the maker believe that his job has been worthwhile and important and to get an overview of how it fitted in with the wider picture. On a lighter note, we might also say that many of the despised practices of the modern workplace, well, not really despised, because our head of department may hear this, but um, <laughs> induction, staff development, appraisal, health and safety, fraternizing with your employees as a management method, staff away days, they all have their medieval equivalent. <laughs> and it was certainly understood, at least by some in the, Middle in the Middle Ages, that the best teachers were also those who were willing to learn and who con continued throughout their life to be willing to learn. And if I could just go back to Chaucer and to the Clerk of Oxford in the Canterbury Tales. He never spoke a word more than was need, and that was said in form and decorum, and brief and terse and full of meaning. Moral virtue was reflected in his speech, and gladly would he learn and gladly teach. <laughs>